Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is Season 3 of Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. Do you remember that? Vaguely, yes, I do. My God, that's a memory. I'll be bringing siblings together to talk about the connections they have as adults, as well as what it was like growing up together. This week, we're talking to Kit Duval and her brother, Dean O'Loughlin. Hunger puts you on edge. You know, you've heard of hangry, being, you know, hungry yeah. and angry at the same time. And we were like that most of the time. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. But I'll also talk to them separately to get a more private take on the relationship. We were sort of all banded together, you know, like people who Vietnam vets who have been out on tour together. It was a bit like we've got each other, which I think was very important. My brothers and sisters have given me what my parents never did, which is that unconditional affection and understanding. So it's really filled a great gap in my life. And in a new twist, I'll be delving a little further back with the help of our sponsors, Find My Past, the family history experts. In all the time, in all the time that she's been obsessed with that and obsessed with genealogy, she's never found a story remotely as interesting as that. No, no. She will literally be over the moon with that information. Brothers and sisters are never straightforward. Author Kit Duval and her little brother Dean are two of five siblings. Born to an Irish mother and a father from St Kitts in the Caribbean, the children grew up in 1960s Birmingham. Their childhood was undeniably tough, as their parents were ill-equipped to provide adequate care for their charismatic and clever children, who somehow emerged with confidence to succeed. We talk about all of that, about waiting for paradise, about caring for your brothers and sisters, and about finding fun despite it all. But Kit and Dean, who now work together as screenwriters, started by describing their very unusual form of early film education. So my father was a film expert. He he loved classic film, you know, 30s to 60s, I'd say. And we would sit with my dad. One very comfortable big armchair in front of the TV, a sofa behind that, which you sort of craned around the, the, the chair to look at the TV. Heat in that room, which was a rarity in the winter. It'd be pitch black. And so you had to sit in absolute silence while he was watching whatever he wanted to watch, which clearly <clears throat> wasn't what we wanted to watch necessarily. Mm. You couldn't make any sound and could interrupt the film in any way or you'd be ejected and then you're out in the cold. No entertainment and no heat, which is pretty grim. There was no chitty, chitty, bang, bang or anything. It was all film noir generally, Humphrey Bogart, uh, George Raft, that kind of thing. Complex black and white uh, detective films. He would turn around to you halfway through the film and say, what's going to happen next? 
Where do you think that's going to go? And you'd have to know, or did you see this, or watch what happens next. And it was like a sort of snap exam that, again, you had to get right because you were under pressure. He also loved film trivia. So if it was Clark Gable, he'd say, who was Clark Gable married to? Who's Olivia de Havilland's sister? So you learnt very, very early, and I'm talking nine, probably nine or ten, how to take apart a plot. You know, sort of by eight or nine, you could easily deconstruct the the Maltese Falcon or, (laughs) you know, Sunset Boulevard or whatever. You, You understood. You understood the lighting. You understood the sound. You could identify a David Lean film from a John Huston film. I mean, I remember this. Probably I'd need to remind Kit of this. It only just occurred to me. We made a board game about making movies when we were, you know, 10, 11, 12, whatever. The obsession with film was very much there and we took it very much to heart. Can you remember what the board game was called? I don't. It would have had Hollywood something. It would have been Hollywood something or other. Oh. Do you remember that? Vaguely, yes, I do. My God, that's a memory. Oh, no. Um, We're talking like Frosty's packet or a packet of cornflakes. You know, totally, that's exactly what we're talking about. And, you know, one of my sisters was very good at drawing and she would draw. It was Monopoly meets <laughs> Game of Life meets, you know. Yes. What was the What was the point of the game? What was making a film, wasn't it? So you hired the actors. That's yeah. it. I've yes. Got Kurt Douglas and Tony Curtis, and I'm going to make a film about whatever. Yes, and that would definitely be um, a biblical one, that wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that one would have been. And then you'd need the right director and the set and the leading lady. Exactly. Who, who would have been the leading lady for those two? Deborah Kerr. There you go. <laughs> you I'll finance it, no problem. I've completely forgotten about Game of Life until you reminded me about that. <laughs> there you go. It was a weird little game with the cars, wasn't it? Wasn't it? And it was, I'll tell you what, it was nothing like life. Yeah, I'm going to say we should write and complain it was really nothing like it life. It really was. Life is not that much fun, let me tell you. And what was it like growing up as one of five? What kind of childhood did you guys have? We had um, an absolutely unpredictable, strange childhood. Uh, Our mother was a Jehovah's Witness. My father, and she was Irish, my father was from the Caribbean, absolutely wedded to the idea of going back to the West Indies as a conquering hero. So we had a, a, a poor childhood. We didn't have materially very much at all. And we also had this very bohemian, strange mother who probably had mental health problems, thinking back to it. Overridingly, my memory of my childhood was was fun and laughter and being very close to, to my sisters. And I guess that was because because it was tough. We were sort of all banded together, you know, like people who Vietnam vets who have been out on tour together. I imagine being an only child in that environment would have been absolutely horrific and you'd probably be in a lot of therapy round about now. Kit described it as really unpredictable and I wonder if that's a word that resonates with you. For me it fell into a sort of rhythm in that the unpredictable nature made it predictable in a weird way. Weird things happened out of the blue quite often but then... Like what? Well you know one time my mum went down the road for chips 
and came back with a homeless girl who stayed for months. <laughs> that kind of thing, which is like properly odd when you think about it as a grown up. But as a kid, it was just like, you know, that's very strange and that's happened. But let's get on with it because nearly everything else is strange as well. And how did that unpredictability feel? Like some of it sounds fun and maybe there was a flip side to that that wasn't so fun. Most of it was not fun at all. The unpredictability related to whether or not you would eat, whether you'd have the right clothes to wear, what mood your pa- either of your parents would be in. You couldn't feel like you were sitting or standing on solid ground at any time at all. Also, because of the Jehovah's Witness overlay, you also had this impending sense of doom because the world was going to end. Mm. Because I think it's hard, isn't it, when your children, you have your universe as presented to you by your parents and you accept a lot of weird things as normal, but perhaps yours was so weird that you didn't buy all of it. No, we did not buy all of it. We were very, very clever children. Uh, Our parents were not clever. And we could sort of see what was going on. We, we knew we were different in many ways. I mean, for a start, this was the 60s. We were some of the first mixed race children, certainly in Birmingham. Um, we knew that our mother was strained. We knew that our father was emotionally absent. We knew this is not how other people live. Oh, yeah, we were definitely a unique band in lots of ways and we sort of inherited this air from our dad and god knows how this happened but that we were sort of special because my dad felt like he was a bit of a bit of a special person he always liked nice clothes and liked to turn out nice and felt a bit movie starish even though he was a bus driver and my mom was quite good at guarding us against racism which was obviously rife at the time Mm. by telling us those people who called us names were, were sort of lesser people than us and we really bought into that wholesale so it gave us this weird confidence that that I think we've we've all still got really to this day. Mm. You said you were one of the first sort of generation of mixed race children as well with this kind of identity that didn't fit here and maybe didn't fit there so I suppose that's another reason why each other was important because there was four other people who were like you. Yes, absolutely. Every combination of being mixed race is always slightly different. Obviously, you might be half Irish, half African. You might be half English, half Pakistani. But we were half Irish, half uh, from the Caribbean, but the Caribbean was also Catitian. That means from St. Kitts. And we were also Brummies. So if you, you know, there was only my brothers and sisters, who really understood what it was to be mixed race. Um, And also only my brothers and sisters who knew what it was to have the parents that we had. And yet there's a gap, isn't there? Like, you know, that's not how people live, but you're, I don't know what power you had as children. Often children don't have very much power to do anything about it. Zero power, no power. I mean, we knew it was weird, but it's not like we could do anything about it. We didn't even attempt to do anything about it. We just... um, waited to leave home every single one of us was waiting to leave home so that's easier for the ones at the top of the um, birth order but the ones at the bottom that must have been pretty awful to leave them behind in a way um no (laughs) i just wanted out every man for himself really um we all understood that you left as soon as you got the chance It sounds like both of your parents had a story they told themselves about how something was going to be glorious and better and maybe it never was. Yeah, they were both waiting for paradise. I mean, that's all there is to it. My mother was waiting for this 
paradise Armageddon that would be brought by God and all the bad people would disappear. And my father was waiting for the paradise in St. Kitts where he returned with having built a house there and in his lovely suits and, you know, that he was going to be something. They were both waiting for paradise. And so that's where they put their emotional energy, their physical energy, their material energy. And we were sort of surplus to requirements and we definitely felt that. That's right. They really weren't invested in the life that they actually had. They were both looking for something else as far away from Spark Hill in Birmingham in the 70s, as you could imagine. And in the meantime, they were living in sort of semi-squalor in with surrounded by loads of strange, over-energetic, malnourished children. Fortunately, we did have each other and we would regularly just go, you know, what the fuck's going on with them two? Uh, so you did have affirmation that this was weird this was unusual do you think in a funny way you you didn't buy in perhaps to going back the conquering hero to st kitts or going to paradise but that sort of exceptionalism was sort of internalized by you in some way like yeah yeah. i do i do do think that they were aiming high both of them were and i think it made us feel like anything's possible well, put it this way, if your end goal is that God is going to change the entire world and you're going to live in paradise on it, then I think any aspiration you have under that seems very realistic. Sort of tragic. Totally. I mean, you know, our parents certainly were two very, very strange people, really. As you become an adult and certainly as you become a parent, you you start to realise that they were extremely dysfunctional as parents but not only that they were very very strange people you say that you got affirmation from your siblings how did that look practically did you kind of spend a lot of time together did you hole up in your bedrooms did you hang out in the park yeah we spent a lot of time together we were poor there was nowhere to go and no money to go out with so we literally spent hours in each other's company mostly getting on but not always you know we fought like siblings do what would you fight about? Can you remember any of the arguments? Um, no, not really. I mean, sometimes it was about food. Who ate all the food because there was so little there? I don't, I mean, it might have been about hogging the heater because we were always so cold. So it was very petty stuff. It doesn't sound petty, heat and... No, heat and food. No, pretty, pretty desperate um, times. <laughs> they're so, sort of the absolute core things aren't they heat shelter and food that's all we argued about and there was enough arguing in the house between my mom and dad to go around anyway so we didn't feel like we needed to add to that i don't think mm. so your dad even though there wasn't very much heat and food i'm just going back over that had a a taste for fine things he did I mean, he, he had money. I mean, my dad had money. He just didn't spend it on us. He was saving up to go to the West Indies, obviously. But every so often he'd go to a tailor and have a handmade suit made for him out of, the, out of mohair and all these amazing things. And sometimes he'd, you'd be in the room with him in his bedroom and he'd be pulling them down again. Oh, look, this is a so-and-so and that's a this. And he had loads of shoes that he used to just take out and polish and then put away. And he had quite a glamorous car, my dad did, because it all fitted in with the with the image so it felt I mean he was obsessed with films and I think 
from a very early age in St. Kitts, because he lived in such poverty and had such a hard childhood, that was his escape. And I think he just took on the persona of this sort of outcast film star who that's who I should have been. I should have been Cary Grant or Clark Gable, obviously a black version, but I should have been that. And I think that's sort of what carried him through that fantasy carried him through. And he had it till he died. You know, he had that sort of idea that he was going to go back to St. Kitts. He was going to turn up and there'd be a soundtrack playing and he would, you know, be the person he'd always wanted to be. This season of Relatively is sponsored by Find My Past, the online home of the 1921 census. By 1921, people from all over the world had begun arriving in Britain to start new lives. People like the remarkable Dr. Harold Moody. Jamaican-born Dr. Moody graduated top of his class studying medicine at King's College London and set up a practice working from home after struggling to find a job. Perhaps there's an inspiring story in your past. Find out in the 1921 census, exclusively available online at findmypast.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. What else did you do for fun? I know that some of you went to the movies on a Saturday morning and Kit, you didn't, but what other silly ways of entertaining yourselves did you come up with? Um, we mostly ripped the piss out of people, I think, as far as I can remember. <laughs> uh, that was a great entertainment. We used, so we used to obviously go to the equivalent of church as Jehovah's Witnesses. And they were so dry, so boring. And most of what we did then was make fun of the people that were giving the talks or what they were wearing or how much their ears stuck out or yeah it was definitely we were quite vicious i think yeah sort of, you know starving hyena-esque <laughs> as you said before you know angry kids i think we yes. we're angry and resentful yes so our humor was very acidic it was dark i think our humor also was. if you're hungry and we were always hungry. There is a sharp quality to what you do. You know, you're not going to sort of sit there and think, oh, look at that. You're like, has that fucking child got a sandwich that I should have? <laughs> Hunger puts you on edge. You know, you've heard of hangry, being, you know, yeah. hungry and angry at the same time. And we were like that most of the time. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. I learned today that resentment isn't really linked to anger, it's linked to envy in your brain. Oh, yeah, wow. I, I'll go with that. We were very yes. resentful. For me, it was anyone that had nice clothes and dinners. That sort of drove me through my childhood. Did you have friends whose families took you in a bit that you could sort of escape your own house? I had a friend called John Burgess who lived in a massive, massive house with a swimming pool. What? And I, I know. I don't know if I targeted him deliberately when I found out <laughs> there a swimming pool, but any opportunity to go around and play with his antique tin train set well i just thought what a load of shine that is what <laughs> cakes 
cakes. His mom was like a cake machine. He was like, <laughs> cakes, boys, cakes. And I'd be like, fling the antique tin thing across the room and get the cakes. I had John Burgess and you had Cressida, Cressida didn't you? Yeah. yeah, so I had my friend was Cressida and her parents were hippies. I didn't know they were hippies. My friend Cressida called her mom Wendy. I'm like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> we used to be playing with Cressida's Barbies, and her mom, who was just so soft and lovely, would come in with this tray of you know chocolate biscuits and crisps and squash, and she'd go, I bought you a treat, and Cressida would say, Get out! And I'd be like, What do you mean, get out? What do you mean, get out? Come in. I love you, Cressida, but I'm starving. And I used to always say things to her like, you know, my Barbie's really hungry, Cressida. She'd say, my Barbie's not. And I'd go, right, okay. And then we just have to play with the starving Barbies, as I called it. So I used to go to their house for warmth. And I remember once going to their house and they'd had Sunday dinner. They'd had it as I arrived. So that was bad timing. And um, But what was left over was Yorkshire pudding, which I'd only ever seen on telly. With the, the Yorkshire pudding that was left over, Cressida's mum put jam on it. And oh I was God. like, no, I'm hungry. <laughs> but, but there's a limit as to what I can entertain. <laughs> I remember thinking, you've ruined that. I'd have eaten that with nothing, but she put jam on it. It would have been delicious, though. No, it would have, but I didn't know that because I'd no, only ever seen it with beef and I'd never tasted it. So I thought it was like putting jam on meat or something. You know, I was just like, oh, you've ruined that. I really wanted to have a taste of it. No, it's got jam on it. Jam. <laughs> How would you describe his role in the family? He's the joker. Oh. Practically or just sort of clowning always? In every way. In every way. He's the one that would make you <laughs> make you laugh. Yeah. She's very much the mother, you know, the, the, the surrogate mother. She was the only one who went out and got a proper job and did something to sort of get us out of the poverty scenario. So when she was working and still at home, she'd come home with, with food. Dean, probably because he was a boy, was more starving than, than many of us, and he was growing at a rate of knots. So, yeah, I used to go out, um, you know, dancing, clubbing or whatever, and come home at midnight or 2 o'clock in the morning and wake him up with food and, like, you have to eat this. Literally, you know, I remember being woken up many times at two in the morning when she'd come home from a nightclub to eat a kebab while I was asleep in bed. Because your legs are too thin. (laughs) (laughs) I I had no problem eating it, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I mean, I know you were aware of what you were doing. You were doing it because he needed food. But did did the sort of magnitude of what you were doing strike you at the time or is it later? No, I mean, I didn't think about it. I just thought, you know, if I eat, everybody eats. And if I don't eat... No one eats. I couldn't imagine coming home with a full belly, knowing that other people at home were hungry. It would just, you know, stick in my throat. So I never, I never went beyond that. Really, it was just like, you know, let's let's spread the calories around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, food was so scarce. She turned into this kind of early form of delivery. Um, with, with, with added sadness, I'm going to say. With a lot of added sadness. So she's very much, I think, the mother. She's the the, the, the hub of the wheel. So I was just talking to Dean about um, your role in the family kit, and he described you as the hub of the wheel and how the five of you don't work without you at the centre. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, there is there is definitely that element to it because I am the person that everybody 
keeps in touch with and I sometimes, you know, disseminate people's news to one another. I think that's that's an interesting way of looking at it because I'm not the oldest and I'm, you know, maybe just the one that's in the middle. I'm not quite in the middle, but in, in many ways I am just sort of at the centre, yeah. And could you have done 16 to however old you are now without them and without that? Oh, God, no. No, I know that in this world there are four people who I could go to for anything, I could have done anything, I could be starving, I could be homeless, and there are four places I can go tomorrow and be loved and taken in, and that's massively important. Yeah, and to be sort of congratulated without any sort of patronising overtones, having come from a place of scarcity and fear, to have that ability to comfort each other is... Absolutely. It's really important. I mean, I think that my brothers and sisters have given me what my parents never did, which is that unconditional affection and understanding. So it's, um, you know, it's it's really filled a great gap in my life. You say that you, well, Kit says she knew it was a bit weird as a child, but you said you definitely know as an adult and you definitely, definitely know as a parent yourself. So from this vantage point, is it pity or is it blame? Because when you hear the bare facts, it sounds almost cruel that a man could look after himself so well, albeit in a deluded way, and not look after his children. It is it is pity more than anything else, because it was born of both of my parents were, were born sort of into very very hard lives poverty and not the right amount of love and not the right amount of care so you sort of can make excuses for both our parents which is what you do now I was angry for I don't know 10 years I suppose and you sort of run out of steam with angry don't you and then you start to think "Mm, what a shame that they wasted so much of their lives on on very unrealistic fantasy Mm. I mean, without being too sort of cod psychology-ish, have you looked back as siblings now and sort of understood why it's the effect it's had on you as adults and what it's All made you into? All the time. We have, we've been having these conversations for many, many years together. We deconstruct and reconstruct and decipher and we use our cod psychology and we <laughs> all talk about it all the time the terrible effects that certainly growing up in a cult had on us, which I think was extremely damaging. Physical effects of living in poverty, which has definitely had an effect on all of us, and our relationship with food, our relationship with our parents, their relationship with one another. Um, So, yeah, we talk about it all the time and find a great deal of healing in that. I mean, I've written my memoir, which was called Without Warning and Only Sometimes. And a, a couple of people have said to me, oh, was this really healing for you to write the memoir? No, it wasn't, because there's nothing in the memoir that I have not or had not discussed with my siblings at mm-hmm. all. It wasn't like some cathartic release, because that's been happening since I left home. But there's a difference between talking about things together as siblings and then putting it out there in the world. I wonder whether you had to talk to your siblings about what you were writing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They read it before anyone ever saw it. And they would have had the veto on anything that was in there. When I first got it, I read about a page and a half. And this is a a term I don't use really, and you hear it a lot, but triggered to fuck I was. It was absolutely... I couldn't read anymore. It was it was almost like someone was reading my mind and had written it all down. 
so it was it took me a good couple of weeks before I could I could read it is there something about it sort of being written down in a book it's like you can dissociate from it and you can see it for what it was a bit more Yes, like I said to you before about the, you know, the, the the understanding as you become a grown up of your parents and why they were the way they were. I think it's a lot easier to get a, a, a more rounded view of my parents having read that book. Yeah. So on this podcast, we, you know, like you've done, Kit, we talk about the history of a nuclear family and we talk about the position that siblings hold in that family and about the stories of their childhood but this season of the podcast is sponsored by find my past the family history experts who are interested in the stories of the families that i talked to going way back um and they've had a little look at your family history and i've got a couple of little stories i wonder if i could tell you yeah we'd love to do that so they have just digitized the 1921 census but this story actually comes from 1935 so your great granduncle william whelan was laboring in county wexford and there's actually a newspaper article to support this when he discovered a really rare Bronze Age urn. <laughs> Hang on, have we got any claims to that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know, because it's been written up quite extensively, and I'll send you the link, that he was working on an earth and stone fence at Crackishorn in Ballyvelig, I think is how you pronounce it, in County Wexford. And there's actually a photograph from the 5th of April 1935 and he's leaning down with this urn that he discovered in amongst the, the peat and the mud. It's amazing. Tell really. me what's really interesting about that. We've got a sister who is obsessed with the Bronze Age. No. <laughs> and and, and in, all, in all the time, in all the time that she's been obsessed with that and obsessed with genealogy, she's never found a story remotely as interesting as that. No, no. <laughs> she will literally be over the moon with that information. Okay, so here we are. This is catnip for your sister. From the urn, we can learn, I guess that means what, humankind, how Campile Man lived in 15,000 BC. Oh, my God. Kim is going to go nuts. (laughs) She's going to go nuts at this. No, literally. So for her birthday, you could maybe send her to Dublin and she could go and see it in the National Museum. Is it there? Yes. Oh, oh, no way. No way. And so when did you and Dean sort of discover that you might want to work together and that you had things to say that you wanted to say together? I know you've got a company. Years ago. I mean, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. I don't know. I was writing uh, a screenplay and my brother at the time was a, a builder and a you know property designer. And I remember ringing him and just saying, look, what about this scene? I was, yeah, literally on a roof doing some roofing, which I hate. It's not just hard work. There's a bit of danger of death thrown in there. So I hate doing that anyway. And, yeah, Kip phoned up and said, how do you fancy writing a screenplay for whatever thousands of pounds it was? He was up a ladder. <laughs> and I said, stop doing that now. You've got, to, you've got to help me with this scene. And, you know, he just immediately zipped into it you know uh, because it's probably nicer than doing a roof i was just yeah great got off the roof left it half done hammer down yep hammer dropped (laughs) and got a friend to finish that job and then that was the last bit of roofing or building i did which is great and so now working with dean you must have an insane shorthand with your brother where you know so much about him and how he ticks and how he works. Oh, it's, I mean, we, when we write scripts together, we have an amazing shorthand, not only from classic film. 
So one of us might say, you know, the scene in Brief Encounter when she does that and he'll go, yeah. And, I'll, and it's, you know, we're not trying to replicate that scene, but we know the feeling that you want from this scene. We, mm. we even have a, a phrase called chicken where I'll say it's chicken. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous now. But yeah, so we have lots of shorthand and woe betide the person that tries to come into that. So I have to ask you what chicken means. You can't explain chicken. You haven't got long enough on this podcast. It's, <laughs> in a, you know, like those weird twins that are locked in a house sort of thing for 20 years and then they get discovered <laughs> and they've got their own language and they haven't combed their hair for 20 years. It, it's that sort of thing, but with, with, with more hygiene so the hair gets combed. I mean, that's important, right? The combing of... <laughs> but I get what you mean. I mean, you know, siblings have it. They, you know, you can't beat me and my sisters. I said to get a Pictionary because before I've even put the pencil on the paper, they know what it is that I'm going to draw. Yeah, yeah. see, it's it's exactly that sort of thing that we we are we are locked into us. And I mean, you could never learn that. Yeah, I bet. Do you have a nickname for her? Yes, ugly. <laughs> Genuinely, are you saying that to pull my No, leg? no, no, it's genuinely, that's what I call it. And it's because we people had always said when we were growing up that we look alike, so it's not as bad as it sounds. But <laughs> her nickname was ugly, yeah. It's still bad. It still, it still is, it's still ugly, it still is. I mean, literally, if my phone rang and it's her, it's ugly comes up. <laughs> um, what's her nickname for you? Um, she did have a few. I was at one point, and don't, I don't know how this works it was something to do with when i was working in a house as a builder and sort of making a whole load of mess i was dr filth (laughs) that's just as charming isn't it um i didn't ask you what your nickname for your brother was uh oh ugly no that that's mine for you (laughs) no 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 we we both have that one (laughs) thank you to kit and to dean and thank you too for listening I mean, we're great moaners, me and Kit, are, are Olympic standard moaners. We can moan about every and anything for hours. We never really bore of it. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to our sponsors for this season of Relatively, Find My Past, for digging into their extraordinary records and uncovering the surprising and often revelatory family stories, some of which you've heard today. Find My Past is the only place online where you can access the 1921 census. So if you want to start your family tree or add colour to what you know already, then findmypast.co.uk is the place to do it. Thank you to Tanita Tickerham for letting us use her amazing song. This is a pocket production and sound design is by Nick Carter at mixsonics.com. Next week, we're talking to Dame Esther Ranson and her little sister, Scylla. If you're enjoying listening to Relatively, please do rate and review, or even better, share an episode with your brother or sister. It really helps. There's a good tradition of love and hate Staying by the fireside There's a good tradition of love and hate Staying by the fireside Another rain may fall Your father's calling you You still feel safe inside Only your ma's too proud Your brother's ignoring you Was it solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? Cause while all the rest have taken time, this didn't do enough for you.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.